in love with the work of David Foster Wallace. And one morning she, you know, and she'd worked for, we met, she worked for Elias Records, the the label. Yeah. The indie label that signed us and put out our second record. So she'd seen, you know, like the fan mail we got and things like that. And yeah. And what, and uh, which we always responded to. And one, one you morning, did, you responded to some fan mail of mine when I was in high school. Oh, anyway. Good. And she confessed sort of like, you know, half embarrassed that, you know, she felt like writing him a fan letter. And I was like, well, you still totally should. Like people love, artists love hearing that they're working yeah. with people. Like it will make him happy. She goes, no, I, I couldn't do it. And so I wrote him a letter and I basically, and I, I enclosed a birthday card for my wife in it. I basically said, look, you know, my wife confessed that she wants to send you a fan letter, but she can't bring herself to do it. I think the reason is, you know, she understands that the, the, the secret inside of every fan letter is the belief that like, you know, the recipient will receive it and understand like, oh, this is my new best friend. Like, <laughs> yeah. And like, she doesn't want to, you know, and she doesn't want you to think that about her. But I know you're an artist and like, you just want to, you know, you'll be happy. Yeah. If she likes her work. Anyway, she's got a birthday coming up and I can't think of anything to get her. So can you sign this card and send it to her? And he did. Oh, really- that's great. Yeah. <laughs> He's somebody that that seems like that could have gone either way with it too. That seems like uh, you could have gotten something maybe not entirely pleasant back in response no, it was, to that. It was, it was actually really funny because I, at the time, you know, we had a, we had a, I, I was still in the band, so I had no day job and we had our young daughter. So we were always together, the two of us. Yeah. And so we were in a Hallmark store one day and she had to like go next door or like she went in the bathroom to change a diaper or something like that. I was like, oh, this is my chance. I can buy a birthday card. <laughs> so I had like five minutes. So I didn't have, you know, I didn't go to the best store and find the wittiest card. I just grabbed some far sight. <laughs> the message he wrote back was, you know, dear, dear Ms. Peterson, as soon as I heard that you were even thinking about the possibility of writing me a fan letter, I had to run out and find the wittiest, warmest greeting card I could. <laughs> I wrote a fan letter to Jim Davis, the creator of Garfield, when I was in like elementary school, and he wow. wrote back, and I was just like, "Oh my God, this is how this is what it's like." I'm always going to hear back from my my heroes when I write to them. <laughs> Life is just going to be great moving forward. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even remember what I wrote to you guys. I just remember one day I wrote down and wrote like fan letters to like five or six of my favorite bands. I don't remember the letter. I just remember you sent stickers with it, like the like yellow sticker with like the dynamite hand. And I had those like on my stuff, like all throughout high school, like those stickers were like on my CD case and my computer and a school book. And just like those stickers, I'd always think about like, they sent those to me. Those aren't stickers I bought in the store. I got them from those guys. So that's, that's all I really remember about it. Well, our, our, you know, our Sandy wrote REM a fan letter when we were in high school uh, or junior high school, I think, and REM wrote back. So, you know, we, 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 you know, our heroes did it to us. So we tried to do it. <laughs> anyone, anyone who, who wrote to us. I wonder if they kept that up after they hit it big, you know? Became yeah, I, I think there's REM, a certain point you know. in which you just can't do it anymore. This is the Pink Spoke podcast hosted by the co-founders of the PinkSmoke.com, myself, John Cribs, and Christopher Funderburg. Chris, we differ on a few things, but there's two things that we are both huge fans of, and that's producer Val Luton and the band Too Much Joy. Would, would you say that that's accurate? I think that that's f- indisputably accurate, John. I think there's no way to deny the premise you've laid out so far. How are you going to bring it together, though, those two wildly unrelated things? What it is is that our guest today, we, were, we are very, very excited to talk to, 
is the front man of too much joy, Mr. Tim Quirk. How you doing tonight, sir? I'm I'm doing good. I'm excited to talk about movies. You're excited too. It's it was amazing to see you tweet about films. I mean, obviously, I should have realized, but I didn't really realize. I always think of you as such a music guy. I never really associated you as a cinephile until I started seeing some of these movies that you had been watching. And of course, there's you know references and a lot of your work to Sunset Boulevard and Harold Maude and Bride of Frankenstein, et cetera. So I should have known, but how far back does it go? Like, are you, have you been watching more stuff recently or is it like a lifelong thing with you? It's, I think there's phases, you know, I guess I've always been, you know, more than just a casual movie fan. You know, I guess I was one of those guys that, you know, whenever the Oscars rolled around, I had seen everything that was nominated just because I go to the movies all the time. My wife uh, loves movies as much as I do. So we always go, you know, pretty much that's like our default activity. Pre-pandemic, that was our default activity before the weekend. I, I took film classes as an undergrad. I went to Tisch School of the Arts as a grad student, got an MFA in screenwriting. And actually, before, oh, you know, I, there was wow. a, there was sort of a professional fork in the road, right? As I was getting out of school, when I had my, my, thesis project, you know, as, as a grad student got optioned by a producer in Hollywood that got me an agent. And that happened right around the exact same time that we got an offer to go, you know, make a couple records for Alias Records, this indie label in San Francisco. And I had to choose like movies or music. At that time, I'd, I'd seen just enough of the movie industry to realize that, you know, the seediest character I'd met in the music business was, you know, Mahatma Gandhi compared to the best character <laughs> I'd just the you know the the backstabbing and the and the and the mercenary nature of it it was just it was pretty off-putting and i you know i realized that you know while the odds of of having an extended career in either movies or music were pretty slim if i took the movie path it was mostly going to be to make money not to make art did you also did you feel any obligation because it's my understanding of your background that like the band that too much joy these are like your old like high school friends like that you i, I if i'm not if i'm getting this correct you at were like hanging out in your driveway and you heard somebody playing a clash song at elsewhere in the neighborhood and like went to find where the music was coming from right am yeah, i getting that correct it, it's it's not only correct it's actually there's there's a there's a sad undercurrent to that story so my the the sandy the bass player in too much joy and i uh you know we were really close friends from grade school on and sometime in junior high school or yeah, it was high school i guess we were uh you know just drinking on you know when a on a swing set, you know, at some our old elementary school, and just bemoaning the fact that all the bands in our high school sucked because they were all these rich kids <laughs> just mauling, you know, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd songs. And we're like, these, you know, these high school dances would be so much better if somebody would play some fucking clash song. And then in this sort of aha moment, we looked at each other, we're like, actually, they don't sound that hard to learn. Like <laughs> And so we decided with two other friends to form this band. Uh, and so Sandy and I took lessons. Like his his yeah. mom would drive. We didn't have driver's license yet. His mom would drive us to White Plains. And this guy, Mickey Martlett, for a half hour, he'd teach Sandy the bass and he'd teach me guitar. Because Sandy was going to play bass. I was going to play guitar. Another friend was going to play rhythm guitar. And, and uh, another friend was going to drum. Sandy learned his bass really quickly. And I never really learned how to play the guitar. <laughs> uh, and so we had this band. We, you know, it was stupid junior high school idea. We were, it was called Four Play, you know, F-O-U-R. Yeah. I think it's hilarious when you're in seventh grade. The Me and the other three guys, we didn't really get it together and sandy just like sort of took off on the base so one day i hear uh someone playing police on my back i'm yeah. like wow i thought sandy and i were the only two people in our town who knew of the clash i'm gonna go make a new friend and so i followed the sound sandy lived a block away from me and as i get closer and closer to the sound i'm like 
pretty sure that's coming from Sandy's house. (laughs) That's not the record. And so I walk into his backyard and he's playing police on my back with Tommy Vinton, this drummer from East Chester and Jake Blumenfield, this guy I also knew from high school, um, who was in like one of the shitty classic rock cover bands. I was like, hey guys, what's going on? <laughs> like, oh, I'm just jamming with these guys. And I, I was like, oh, I thought we had a band. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to form a band with these guys, but you could be the singer. I'm like, oh, okay. So basically, Sandy and I, you know, Sandy was betraying me. I quickly threw my other two friends under the bus and formed, like, and we literally formed the band that day. So the band was pretty much joy was formed in betrayal. That's uh, that's funny. We because at Tommy Vinton's retirement show that you did, we heard you perform "Police on My Back." I'm not sure if you opened with it, but that's I was uh, you did that in tribute to him. So one of the first songs you guys ever played as a band, yeah. we got to hear you perform literally, live. Literally the first. Oh, that's really interesting. And you grew up, um, we know White Plains very well. We went to SUNY Purchase College, so we know White Plains. The question that this you talking about all these places you live made me think, every time I would drive by Gramatan Avenue, I would think of your song, Is It Named After Gramatan oh, Avenue? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. I was, I was living in an apartment, this was after, this was when I was going to NYU, when I was in grad school, I was living in an apartment in Tuckahoe with my girlfriend at the time. Yeah. And it was right on the border of Bronxville. And there's yeah. you know, Gramatan Avenue and there's this big stone monument to Gramatan where it's like, you know, this is the spot where Gramatan sold Bronxville to, you know, the Dutch or whoever the hell it was. And I always thought that was so hilarious because my understanding of, you know, what happened back then was the Native Americans thought they were getting this amazing deal because they're like, who are these crazy Europeans who think you can own the land? You yeah. give us money for something you don't actually own. You know, nobody can own it. It belongs to whoever's working it. So they thought they were getting the better end of the deal. And you know, since the Dutch didn't actually start cultivating the land right away, they just came back. Uh, <laughs> all, all the, you know, all the wars started and everything. I don't know if it's true or not, but that was my understanding. And that's that's sort of what led to the song. And just to circle back to the question I had for you that got us on the subject of, of forming the band, when you had the choice between going to do film or going to do music, did you also feel a little bit like if you go to do music, your friends come with you and the band comes with you and feel that obligation? Or did that not even factor oh, into oh, it for you? Oh, it totally factored into it, but it wasn't obligation. It was just support. It was the, yeah. as I was saying, like, you know, if I did movies, it would be for, it, the chances of making money were higher than the chances of making good art. Like, I, it was pretty obvious, like whatever I did was going to be compromised and, you know, like they're going to be done by committee. And I wasn't, you know, and if there was going to be a committee, I wanted it to be my buddies. And yeah. so I figured there was a better chance of making art that I was proud of with, you know, in taking the music path with my friends than trying to make it in Hollywood. And Too so we did end up in the movies. I think we had the same experience where the first time we ever heard Too Much Joy, not together because we didn't know each other yet, but it was uh, at the end of Shakes the Clown. Yeah. So yeah. you kind of ended up making it in the movies anyway. The Citizen Kane of Alcoholic Clown movie. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the Great Boston Globe review of it. Yeah, no, that was that at those credits. And I immediately went out and got Son of Sam I Am. And I was like, this is fantastic. This is my new favorite album kind of thing. And, you know, that that was it It from there for, for me, definitely. And I was surprised when we got to college that John was also familiar with it because it was, you know, I think too much joy even now. I don't know what your relationship to it is, but to me, it's a, a true cult act in the sense of like, it's either you say to people, I like this band. And the answer is either I've never heard of them or they're my favorite band. Like that's sort of the space they occupy. Yeah, yeah. For that. And John and I definitely had a, a bit of that reaction to it. I take it that, that you, when you were getting enticed towards Hollywood, it was 
not a Val Luton producer type enticing you out there. It wasn't a, a genius auteur producer that would, that would allow you to work the way you wanted, just assign you a title. It wasn't that sort of a situation. I'm no, assuming. it was, I mean, it was, you know, it was the, like NYU was sort of a feeder for this sort of thing. Yeah. It was one of my professor's girlfriends or wife. I'm not quite sure what their relationship was, but you know, they were, they were buddies and, and he would feed her, you know, he would pass her scripts that he liked and she liked mine. So she optioned it. And then that got me an agent. And then that got me, you know, some potential other work. Um, but it was just, you know, it, 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 it was pretty clear pretty quickly that it wasn't necessarily for me. I was more of a fan than a, than a creator in this realm. So I was always sort of, you know, so I studied it, but you know, you remember what it was like back in the eighties and the nineties, it was possible to know of all the important movies and all the important directors, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily easy to see them. Uh, yeah. If in New York or San Francisco and had a really, really good video store, you could get, you know, you could go find and rent a lot of the classics. But if you didn't, you know, tough luck. And now, you know, almost every between between all the different streaming services, between YouTube, between the Internet Archive and between and Netflix's uh, DVD rental service, which still has a massive catalog and anything that I almost anything that I can't find streaming, I can find there. It really got kicked into high gear during the pandemic. And what happened was in, you know, in, around March of 2020, you know, we were we were everybody was locked down. My wife, my wife was doing a bunch of jigsaw puzzles and we're like, ah, how are we going to fill our days? <laughs> we had seen one Fast and Furious movie. We'd seen, you know, the fate, of, we'd seen number eight, the fate of the Furious. <laughs> the only reason we went to see that was because my wife had gone on a trip with a friend to Cuba uh, when that was still a, a thing that was possible to do. And her friend does not travel the way we travel, which is, you know, she's, her, her husband is an executive with Starwood or was at the <laughs> time. And so he was... <laughs> Cuba exploring, you know, potential hotel deals as, as Cuba was opening up. So they had drivers, right? So my yeah. wife and her friend were driven around, you know, and Cuba has this great car culture. So they were driving yeah. around in this like fancy old, you know, Cadillac, purple Cadillac convertible. And the driver said to them like, oh, this car is in the next, the upcoming uh, Fast and Furious movie, which, you know, opens up in Cuba and, and has a lot to do with our car culture there. So when she came home, she's like, you know, we're going to go see this Fast and Furious movie because I have to see my car. So we went expecting <laughs> nothing. And we're like, holy shit, that was fun. That was enjoyable. Like, maybe we should pay attention to the other movies. And then we sort of forgot about it. Then the pandemic hit. And I was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to watch all the Fast and Furious movies in a row, in order. <laughs> you know? And we did that over the course of like two weeks. And, you know, it was fun for the first three. And then it sort of became a slog. Uh, <laughs> at the end of it, I was like, well, what if I did that, but only with good movies? <laughs> so I, I started putting together lists of, you know, uh, when, you know, the sight and sound, 100 best movies, you know, they change it every decade. So mm -hmm. you look at one of those and, you know, maybe there's 20 movies you haven't seen. And then you, you know, then you look at the one from the decade before and there's not a lot, you know, there's some, there's some different titles on there. And so you go through all of them since the 50s and suddenly, you've got a list of like 85 movies, you know, that like great movies that you've, yeah. seen, that you've heard of, most of them you've heard of. You're like, okay, I'm going to watch these in order. That was, it was super inspiring. And, you know, I'm, I tend to be a completist. Like if I like a band, I need every album they've ever done. I need yeah. all the projects. I need all the solo albums. And then I need, and then as they, as I read interviews with them and they tell me who influenced them, I got to go find all their records. So that sort of, that same cycle started happening to me with movies. And as I got through the end of the, the sight and sound list, you know, and then I found some BFI lists. And when I, when I ran out of best 100 movies of all time lists, it's like, okay, well, let's find, you know, the ones that I've watched 
gave me an appreciation I'd never had before for Westerns, which I always thought yeah. was sort of dumb. And then you watch a couple of good ones. You're like, oh, they're not stupid. But they don't have to be stupid. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they got me really into film noir. So then it's like, okay, let's find the 100 best Westerns of all time lists. And let's find the 100 best film noir to- of all time list. And each, you know, there's a lot of mediocre stuff in there. But the good ones really, really resonate. And it turned out it was super inspiring. And I started just, you know, writing lots of lyrics based on just stray bits of dialogue interesting uh, in the movies. And I, and I just, you know, it felt, it, it made me happy. It made me feel good. You know, there's a psychological aspect of this, uh, you know, that's cut, sort of transparent. Like, like, I think we're already <laughs> forgetting just how shitty 2020 was. I mean, yeah, easily the worst year of the 57 I've had on earth. You know, it felt like the entire Trump was president, that the, there was a pandemic, <laughs> like, you know, and it, it just went on and on and on. You know, I, I guess, Technically, I was alive in 1968, so maybe it was worse and it felt like the yeah. world was really flying apart back then. But, you know, I was like, baby, I didn't know. Yeah, um, <laughs> this was this was something, you know, otherworldly almost. But just, you know, having having a list of things that I could accomplish and cross off gave me, you know, this, you know, this, <laughs> this false sense of control in a really chaotic time. Um, yeah. And as I got and I tend to have a little, you know, obsessive compulsive streak in me anyway. So as I got more and more into it, like it just became what I did. I mean, granted, yeah, I yeah. wrote and recorded two albums and, <laughs> held, and held down my day job as a tech executive yeah. um, and watched 1500 movies during the pandemic. Whoa. Did I you keep the, track of them? Is that the oh, a real uh, number? I have, this, I have this complex rating system where, uh, <laughs> you know, I list them all the year, the director, and then they get, you know, you can get up to a hundred points in four categories, acting, writing, directing, and then this bonus category of, you know, that just captures the ineffable, um, yeah. which is perfect for a lot of the Val Luton films because they don't necessarily have the best acting. Directing is <laughs> usually pretty solid. Um, but, you know, they, I will Luton, not have any Tom Conway slander on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> they get they get lots of bonus points in the in the in the ineffable column, you know, so the perfect score you can get is 400. So I've, I've obsessively rated all of them. That made me go back and rewatch a bunch of stuff. And it made me want to, re, you know, figure out all the movies I've watched in the past and add them to this list, which I haven't finished yet. But, and yeah. was it in this time frame that you saw Val Luton for the first time yeah, or is oh, it yeah I you know I'd heard of cat people obviously I'd seen the Paul Schrader movie when it came out just because I was a horny teenager who wanted to see Nastasi Kinski get naked yeah uh, and you know, very and it, very difficult very few movies where that happens <laughs> no I'm <laughs> and it, it you know and it sort of befuddled me um and in in the back of my mind I was like oh maybe one day I'll I'll see the original but it was you know it was hard back then I don't know what led me to it may it might have been on one of those top hundred lists and so I watched it. That was the first Luton that I watched. And it was, I was not prepared for just how different and special and great and frankly profound it was. And, and not only that, but how much he was doing with so little, you know, I, as an indie rocker, you know, I'm a big fan of it's just as a songwriter, as a pop songwriter, I'm a big fan of constraints, right? Like, you know, trying to, trying to do original work in a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus structure without you know, falling back on cliches that have been done a hundred times before, you know, it's liberating. It's, it's hard, but it's really, you know, and, and, and trying to do it on really small budgets, but make it sound like the Beatles, you know, that's, yeah. you wind up doing, you know, you, you could wind up doing your best work when you're most constrained, I find. So getting have a, you, that reminds me of, have you seen exactly the five obstructions, the Lars von Trier movie where um, there's a famous legendary Danish filmmaker who made this movie called The Perfect Human. And Lars von Trier goes to him and says, I want you to remake your own movie, but with these five 
different constraints. Like each time I'm going to give you, you're going to remake it, but you have to make it like no shot can be longer than five seconds, right? It has to be animated and he goes through and it's a movie that's very much about what you're talking about, about that idea. It's like meditating on this idea of how constraints expand uh, the creative process and how necessary they are to the creative process. And yeah, literally seen... only that movie and you are the only people I've ever heard talk about it. So, okay. I've seen, I've seen every, I've seen every uh, Von Trier since Europa, which was released as Zootropa, Zootropa in, in the States. Yeah. Um, but I haven't gone backwards. So the but... thing, you know, the, 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 my, my obsession, it, it led me to, uh, you know, I've watched a lot of shit, frankly. Um, yeah. I, 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 I my wife will walk in and go, why are you watching this? Like, why, why, why haven't you just turned this one off? It's obviously terrible. And I, I always say like, I have to, I'm honor bound to get to the end of any one that I start. Um, but I, I slog through the mediocre ones just because when you get a really, really good original work of art, it's just, it I, it sounds like a cliche, but it's life-changing for me. Um, yeah. it just, it gives me a lift, uh, and you know, makes me want to carry on for another day and then go try to you know put my own art in the world do you feel like you had lost that with music maybe like were you are you still hearing albums that feel life-changing in that way or do you feel like you had heard all the albums that are going to change your life and now you're getting from film what you used yeah. to get from movies or no it, it still happens but it, you know it, it it nothing happens to the extent that it did when you were 14 right yeah um, sure. So I, you know, I listened to, I listened to, you know, sort of like left of the dial style bands, you know, that are, that are more recent. And I try to imagine them changing somebody's life because they're obviously not changing mine. Um, yeah. But there are, there are bands that have, you know, made a, had a huge impact on me. The most recent one is Big Thief. I you know, so about as wildly different from Too Much Joy as you could possibly imagine. Like, you know, <laughs> they are art with a capital A and not particularly funny, although they, the, the most recent album has some, you know, some lighthearted moments on it, but they just, what they do. I don't understand how they do what they do. And it just, I, I, I want to figure it out. Once or twice a decade, I'll have that feeling. Like, you know, as yeah. soon as I heard my first Big Thief song, boom, I was down at the record store buying every single album they'd ever put out. Yeah. Uh, and then just, you know, inhaling them over a weekend. It's great to hear that you that you went through this list of films and, you know, kind of like fell back in love with it because I'm not a big music guy. I kind of like what I like, but I don't do deep dives into it. Your Tumblr series, Five Star Songs, which I think you did... Was it 1,200 songs that you ended up doing? Uh, Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like your, of your favorite songs. That was amazing for me because I, you know, I know about Swamp Dog now. I'm so grateful. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just really, really great for someone who, you know, to, to get to get into music who doesn't know it very well. Yeah, and especially for me, I didn't know before I started reading that blog, I didn't know anything about soul music. And there's so much great soul music in that in that blog i felt like it was almost an education in that in in some ways and so many bands that like i had never even heard their names before i came across them in there yeah well i mean a lot of the that that's the the thing that i love about soul music you know old classic soul from the from the 60s in particular is there were so many people on so many small indie labels you know just regional labels uh across the states trying to mimic the Motown sound or the stats. Yeah. Sound. And, you know, because there was this wild collector mentality in the UK, a lot of them got resuscitated, you know, and, and re rescued from obscurity. So these things, you know, they may be sold a hundred or a thousand copies, you know, in Ohio, uh, <laughs> like 1967. And the only way to find them now is on these compilations. And, and, and they're, and, and they're not all streaming. It's like the 
licensing of this stuff is really hard and difficult. So oh, I know. I'd, I'd read one of your you know reviews and be like, great, I'm gonna go get this on iTunes. Oh yeah, good. Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> but it's just it's, you made us so, do the work. <laughs> yeah, but there's so much stuff to discover uh, in there. So you know, I, I've had. I'd say from like the, the the aughts on, there's a good 12 year period where the most, you know, thrills that I was getting out of music were coming from old soul singles, basically. Well, just as a way to kind of segue into the first one we're going to talk about, something that's relevant, surprisingly to me anyway, is also during the pandemic, you guys got back together and, and went back into the studio and recorded two new albums. The mistakes were made and all these fucking feelings. And when I, you know, when you, you said you wanted to talk about Luton, you specifically said that Val Luton appears on these new albums that you have references to him. And he, I thought, well, he is, he is thanked by name in the most recent one because there are like there, I have literally copy and pasted some lines of dialogue from some of his movies into some of the, some of the songs that are on the album, then a couple of ones that didn't make the cut. Uh, some of the singles we released, uh, you know, through the Indiegogo campaign uh, and some that, you know, will appear on later albums in the future. Some that are still, you know, just in a demo stage. There's multiple, yeah. multiple songs are influenced by Val Luton dialogue. That's as soon as you told me that, I was like, I, I listened to the album. I loved it, but I didn't really get Val Luton out of it. And so, of course, went and listened to it again and found, because there is no beauty here. There's just dying and decay. We go. weep when a child is born. We <laughs> dance as wreaths were laid. And I met right a ghost. Oh, right. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. I've always, my favorite TMJ song is Magic. And I always, I love the suggestive lyric. If I had a magic wand, I'd wave it once and fake the rest. And I've always thought, I wonder if he knows the Preston Sturgis movie, Unfaithfully Yours, and the excellent innuendo, a little magic wand, darling, dipped in a little stardust when he's talking about, Rex Harris is talking about his um, his uh, conductor, Patan. <laughs> I, I, so I, now, I, now, now I'm looking for movie references all over your catalog. I, I, I did see that one uh, during my pandemic watch, but, you know, that was like 20 years after. <laughs> um, I love it. Oh, there's also a line, the, I met a ghost about uh, better doctors. Legba and Dembala, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. No, I was just going to say to me on the, the, the new album, is uh is call of the void when i've heard that they're val luton inspired was like that feels like val luton sentiments in some way it feels like hearing dr lewis judd talk that song in some fundamental way uh is that one that is it as uh, opposed to a specific line or any kind of feel that you felt with that directly, no i would say that one is more you know that's a i saw the phrase lapel david and someone yeah. explained like oh the friend this is a french phrase that 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 explains you know that that urge that people have when you know you're standing on a platform you're like oh what if i just stepped off it right now as the train's coming like and you're not suicidal but you have the yeah um, and I was like, oh, there's a song in there. And I'm, I'm really fucking proud of that particular lyric, by the way. But I would say that one is more an example of why Val Luton movies resonate with me so much as opposed to coming from a Val Luton movie. Like as I, as I watched Cat People and particularly Seven Victim and I Walked with a Zombie, you know, I think it's most pronounced in those, although it sort of runs through all of them. It's just that, you know, those movies spoke to me. And like I knew, I understood exactly what he was getting at. A lot of them are fairly you know, clear metaphors or allegories for depression and dealing with depression mm -hmm. or suicidal ideation. Yeah. But, you know, not just not in a, in a weepy, you know, uh, overdramatic adolescent way in a really deep, like, you know, in a, in a, in an Albert Camus way, almost, you know, it's like, he's really doing a deep philosophical dive into why, why keep going? Um, why not end it? Uh, and I just find that, you know, 
endlessly fascinating. And there, you know, there are moments, and I, I should specify with the Val Luton, not, not with every single movie I watch, because I'm watching a lot of them in the daytime, but pretty much my Friday and Saturday evenings during the pandemic, my favorite thing to do was drink some good red wine, take a couple of edibles and watch old silent movies. But I, you know, my, my, my revelation was I don't have to stick with the stupid soundtrack. Uh, oh you know, yeah. Oh, for sure. Movies after the fact. You they're, know. they're the worst. I would yeah. say 80% of them are, they either make the mistake of like funny images, funny music, or big images, big music on those soundtracks. Like Metropolis is just yeah. going to have like gongs getting hit. And it's like, there's no way Fritz Lang wanted this on there. And, and the funny stuff, it's like Buster Keaton did not want like kazoos and slide yeah. whistles and, and shit on these movies. Yeah. So, so what I do is, I just put in, you know, it's, it's basically have my 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 MP3 player, and I put in my headphones, and I just play my thirty seven thousand favorite songs on shuffle play while I watch these old silent movies, pretty stoned. Uh, and then that led to like, okay, even when there's sound, I'm still I'm going to keep going with the wine and the edibles. So most of these Val Luton movies were watched under the influence, but there were, I would, it was shocking how often I had to pause to scribble down. Um, either a line of dialogue that I wanted to steal uh, or just a thought that it had sparked, you know, that could potentially lead to something else. Um, and other times when I just like pause and just cheer because somebody was expressing, you know, thoughts that I'd had, um, yeah. but hadn't been able to articulate in quite that way. Um, the number of times I hit pause on a Val Luton movie to just go, yes, is <laughs> unbelievable. It's amazing. These are 70 minute movies and there's just, there's so much in them. I mean, each well, that, time you go back to see it, it's amazing. That, that, that's what I love about them is they are so fucking jam packed and seven victim in particular, because it's my favorite. Um, and I just, you know, watched it for a third time uh, before, you know, we got together so I could speak semi intelligently about it. And the thing that amazed me about it is there is not a wasted line or a wasted action in that 69. Yeah. Right. It is every single thing serves a purpose. Um, and it is so full of illusions and allegories and lines that are referring back to things that were said earlier in the movie, you know, the character names, uh, you know, the, the place names, uh, everything means something. And he did it fast. And sometimes you can sort of see, you know, sometimes you can say like, hey, they're reusing that set. So it's supposed to be a different apartment, but they're just shooting it from yeah. a different angle. <laughs> but you don't mind. It's just like, because he's, you know, they're so well written and they're so well directed. Uh, and it's just, you know, and he's not even, he's not credited necessarily as the writer or the director on them, but like they're Val Luton movies. Yeah. Well, I think the question of if he's the, the director or not, he famously like stayed off set and didn't interfere in that way. Screenwriter is always interesting because I, when we were doing this, we talked on a podcast many years ago about Val Luton and did a ton of research then. And one of the questions I've always had is he's, it's always said that the, the, screenplays are his the final screenplays were written by him but that he builds on the screenplays of other writers and he doesn't take a screen credit you know on on uh walked with a zombie where kurt seod mac is, is still credited and stuff like that they're left in and it's it's really unclear to me what it means that he wrote the final draft like how much involved he was he's definitely somebody who pitched story ideas and was famously a story idea guy like he was just someone that you could get 
in front of executives and pitch the stories to, and he just knew how to get to the heart of ideas and pitch ideas really, really well. So he's un- unquestionably a driving force in that way. But like what it means that he wrote them is still a really open question to me. Uh, you know, I, I still wonder about it. To me, he's like, um, he's obviously a producer auteur, but one of the things that I like about him is that I think that he is a producer and he does let the people around him work. That's sort of what a good producer does is puts everybody in their roles to succeed properly in some way. And even on the budget, the small, small budgets he was working with, he hired just brilliant people. Yeah. He would get, he would get amazing people who would go on to fantastic things right at the beginning of their career. So like he was a great talent spotter. Yeah. And I think he also did the smart thing of with the three main directors that he worked with while at RKO of Jacques Tournay, Mark Robeson and Robert Wise, they were all editors. He brought in editors to become directors with the idea that they will know how to cut their movies together. So there'll be less wasted footage, less wasted time because they'll be constructing it in their heads. It was sort of explicitly his idea that they won't overshoot footage because they know how they're going to cut it together anyway. And I think that's really brilliant in terms of the context. Again, if he just he strips everything down so much, he gets the film so lean, they don't feel thin. You know, they feel very, very full films, but they feel very direct and to the point, uh, you know, just just very focused, like every single gesture, like you're saying, has a correct meaning. And just part of part of him is orchestrating all of that, getting all of the people together, getting all the ideas together and just getting them flowing in the same direction on the same page in the same way, which is the producer's job. So let's dig into it. Let's uh, the kind of idea was we talk about. Uh, the two films, uh, Tim, that you said you were most interested in discussing, which was The Seventh Victim and I Walk with a Zombie, and then just kind of opened it up to some general loot and talk afterwards, if you like. But um, The Seventh Victim, let's get started. Just do a quick synopsis here. So, so wait, well, let, me, let me say one thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask anybody who hasn't seen The Seventh Victim, when I'm done saying what I'm about to say, hit pause. Go watch the movie and <laughs> then come back and listen to us talk about it because... I, I want people to have the same experience I had, which is I went into it knowing almost nothing about from, oh, this is the guy that did Cat People. Um, yeah. I guess I'd seen Cat People and, and Leopard Man before I saw Seven Victim. Uh, maybe I'd seen Zombie. Uh, so I knew something about Val Luton, but I knew nothing about what this movie was going to be about. And it's fucking insane. Like, I literally cannot <laughs> believe they let him release this movie. Uh, it is, it is, uh, it's super modern. For, the, for its time, um, and it's really fucking deep, uh, and it deals with, you know, suicide and death, uh, and that's all you need to know before you watch it, um, because it's unlike anything you've ever seen or will ever see again, uh, although it clearly influenced some, some stuff that comes in the future, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, but you want to go watch it knowing almost nothing before you hear us dissect it. I'm glad you brought it up. I am always, you know, my my inclination is always like I would never listen to a podcast about a movie I haven't seen, you know, <laughs> if I had any interest in actually seeing it. Sometimes it's nice, like, well, I guess I won't have to see the movie. I'll just hear what these guys <laughs> have to say about it. But yes, absolutely. If you haven't seen these movies, please do so before you continue listening. Seventh Victim starts uh, with Mary Gibson, a young woman who is a student at Highcliffe Academy. She's a form- informed that her older sister Jacqueline has gone missing and has not paid Mary's tuition in months. So she basically will have to leave the school. 
And so she takes the opportunity to do so to go find her sister in New York City. She finds out that Jacqueline uh, had handed over ownership of her cosmetics business, La Seguise, to her assistant, Esther Reddy. Uh, and then she follows up on a tip from the employee there, Francis, that Jacqueline frequented an Italian restaurant in Greenwich Village called the Dante. And when she gets there, she finds out that her sister rented a room above the place, which is room number seven. A little detail I never noticed before this time watching it. Um, she convinces the owner to open it up and she finds inside a chair with a noose hanging from the ceiling. What the fuck? Visual that <laughs> always gets me no matter how many times I see it. <laughs> Uh, so then Mary ends up meeting all the people who knew her sister. We've got Jason Hogue, who is like a slacker bohemian poet. We've got Gregory Ward, an attorney who turns out uh, to be Jacqueline's secret husband. And psychiatrist Dr. Lewis Judd, who is uh, treating Jacqueline. Uh, she also meets an enterprising private detective named Irving August and uh, accompanies him to the cosmetics uh, company late one night where he's stabbed to death in the dark by an unseen assailant. And then she later sees two men moving his body on the subway. And the big reveal ultimately is that Jacqueline has joined this cult of East Village uh, burgers called the Paladist, who members including Mrs. Reddy and Francis, and they basically sentenced Jacqueline to death for revealing their existence in sessions with Dr. Judd. They were holding her captive, and out of fear, she inadvertently killed this private uh, investigator, Irving, thinking that it was a cult assassin sent after her. So now... Um, Basically, it's a question of whether they're going to get her to, to commit suicide because they have this practice of not inflicting direct violence upon their victims, but hoping that they'll just kind of push them if they're already so inclined to kill themselves, uh, if they would carry out the deed themselves. And so the whole thing kind of becomes this half standard thriller, half existential question of the choice to live, the choice to die, that I think will probably befuddle everybody who watches it for the first time. But uh, what is it about these characters Tim and, and this this bizarre movie. So um, there's a lot, but mostly <clears throat> it's that they open. It's room number seven. They open up the door, and the only thing. So the only thing in this room that she's rented and has never returned to is a chair beneath a noose hanging from the ceiling. I, I've never seen anything like that in a movie, and it, it's the type of thing that makes me love movies because you could imagine this being in a story, you know, or in a novel, and you'd sort of go like, "Oh, that's a sort of a hoary literary device. That's a that's kind of a heavy-handed metaphor." But when you just see it, yeah, and like you know, it's 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 completely different than having it described. You just the door opens and there's a fucking noose in a chair, and you're like, "What the hell is going on? This is insane!" And then over the course of the movie, they explain, you know, the the, the husband, the secret husband, explains that you know he he bought the rope for her, and the rope made her happy because knowing that she could end her life whenever she wanted made her able to live. Um, when do you ever see a movie grapple with something like that? That's just fucking crazy. Um, and the thing, so like from the moment I saw that, I was like, okay, this is like, I, I have to see where this thing is going. And then all of a sudden there are these, you know, there's this devil worship. I was like, oh, that's kind of cheesy. But then it turns out the devil worshipers, they're not like these cliched, you know, evil cackling monsters. They're super rational, somewhat upper crust uh, people who are like, what, what evidence is there that, that good is more powerful in the world than evil? We're going to worship evil. Uh, and they're, they're hyper logical and, and they make a deep, they make a better case than the good guys do, frankly. Um, but what really, really, so like I knew I liked the movie and I, I, I knew it was unlike anything else I'd seen. And, you know, there were a bunch of people I'd fallen in, a bunch of artists that I'd fallen in love with during my pandemic movie obsession, uh, you know, like 
beforehand, I'd already loved Kubrick and the Coen brothers and, you know, the obvious people that I should. Um, and then the, the pandemic led me to, you know, obvious masters that I'd heard of, but had never really consumed their work. Like now I'm a complete Bergman head now. Yeah. Carl Theodore Dreyer completely blows my mind. Right on. Yeah. Like I, I watched all the Tarkovsky's, uh, you know, um, but Bellator, people like Bellatar, uh, you know, completely blew my mind. But all of those folks, you know, they're artists. With so a- all of the very lighthearted stuff, yeah, right. Bellatar, <laughs> Tarkovsky, Bergman. And, and the thing is, they're all, you know, they're all making art films that, you know, that present themselves as art films and say, yeah. we are a deep, you know, you prepare yourself for the next three and a half hours. You're, we're going to we're going to wrestle with deep existential questions. And you sort of know that going in. This is like theoretically on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? But to me, it's of a piece with all those other guys. It's it's wrestling with the same things, but it's doing it in a much more mass appeal. You know, it's disguising itself as a horror movie or a thriller when it's really something else. Um, and I just fucking love that, you know. And I, I will I will relate this to my band in a little bit because because you know we we get dismissed a lot as like a jokey frat rock band right and like yeah. that's all you hear like to me as far as i'm concerned that's your problem that's not my problem because our there, there there's a deep end to our songs uh and you know we you know we always believed in getting you to sing really fucked up shit with super catchy melodies that sound like they're you know yeah lucky things and then if you actually take a moment and, and look at what you're singing you're like oh holy crap I'm thinking about killing myself, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, that was something that that I always responded to and felt about your music is that there's incredible sadness to them and they deal with sadness in a very direct way in a way that I wasn't used to in other music, you know, um, which is, I think, more in line with my personality of having a lot of humor in my life and thinking of myself as a like quick-witted, funny person uh, is much more in line with what my personality is. But being a teenager and going through the difficult existential issues that your music really overtly deals with, I don't think it's super buried in there. I think it's hand in hand with it. I I understand, of course, what you're saying about like people are going to hear the the chorus to King of Beers and want to sing along and raise their beer up in the air. But that that whole album, Serial Killers, is an album that I find almost top to start, just like incredibly touchingly existential and almost painful throughout, you know? It's a, it's a really heavy album, you know? The, the original title of the album was Despair, the album. <laughs> um, we, we, had, we, we had this brilliant artwork that we loved. The art director came up with. It was sort of like corporate suits, uh, you know, pointing at graphs, but the graphs were all going down. Uh, and the album was literally called Despair. And the, the, basically, the label uh, they didn't insist we changed it. They just said, you know, they rejected the the artwork that we gave them because they thought uh, people would think the the you know the the ethnically diverse middle-aged corporate people in suits on the cover were the band. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, you need a different cover. And the art, the, uh, the art director got so pissed off. He just gave them this out of focus, you know, picture from the photo shoot. Uh, and they said, you need to give it a different title. And we literally, you know, and, and they're like, if you don't come up with, you know, if you don't give us an answer today, like this album's not coming out on its release date, you know, it's going to be yeah. three months later. And we'd been sitting on it for a year at that point. So we're like, fuck it. We'll just call it serial killers. Cause we were obsessed with serial killers at that point. Um, yeah. you know, we'll make it a gag and we'll spell it with a c um i hate the title i hate the cover the original uh, to me the album is called despair the album <laughs> oh that's that's very good because i used to have a hard time recommending it to people because it is called serial killers yeah. it always have to be like no 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 this is actually this is actually good 
uh, for it. So, so, you know, I mean, I would say that the, the town I grew up in had a surprisingly high number of, of kids, you know, in my grade and grades yeah. just above and below me. Like we had a pretty big suicide problem. And um, did you grow up? What's that? Did you grow up in Scarsdale or Scarsdale, that? Okay. That's what like I thought. Every year, every year, somebody would die. Uh, yeah. between like, you know, seventh grade and, and, and graduating from high school, um, sometimes more than one person. Uh, sometimes it was like, you know, drunk driving accidents that, you know, maybe they were, you know, just really trying to kill yeah. themselves. And maybe it was an accident. Other times it was just straight up suicide. So like I grew up in that, you know, in that environment where you were constantly asking, why did that person kill himself? Why don't I kill myself? Yeah. Uh, and so this movie really, really spoke to me. But the thing that put it over the top is the very, very end. Um, because what happens in the end is, you know, the, the, our, 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 you know, uh, Jacqueline has this harrowing walk back from, from the devil worshipers to the, you know, to the room with the noose, um, where all kinds of crazy shit happens. Uh, and she goes back, she goes up to room number seven and the neighbor, the sickly neighbor comes out and she has this super weird conversation with the neighbor. And I actually jotted down a bunch of this, um, where Mimi, the neighbor says, you know, she's, she's sick, uh, and she's always been afraid. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's always been afraid and waiting. And Jacqueline says, why wait, why not just kill yourself? <laughs> and Mimi says, well, I'm going to go out. I'm going to laugh and dance and do all the things I used to. And Jacqueline says, and then you will die. Right? <laughs> then, then we see Mimi go back into her room. We, we cut back to, to uh, the sister and, and the husband who confess their love for each other. And then we cut back to the room and it's just the empty hallway. And you see Mimi come out of the room of her room and she's no longer sickly. She's wearing like an evening gown because she's going to go out and party on the town. And as she walks down the stairs, you just hear a chair fall over. Yeah. Um, because basically Jacqueline has, you know, stepped up on the chair, put her head in the noose and killed herself. Uh, and then you hear the sister recite the John Don quote that was at the beginning, you know, that was in the stained glass window. That's the very first thing you see in the very first shot of the movie about I run to death and death meets me as fast. And it's just like, I mean, when that happened, how many movies have that that big a gut punch at the end when something unexpected happens that just like, you know, sums up everything? Like literally the only thing I can compare it to is maybe the very, very last shot in, and sound effect in all that jazz. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. huge production number and he's dancing and he's singing and it's all about his life and it's all metaphorical. And then the music just stops. He's in a body bag and some unseen person zips up the body bag and you just hear that zip. And then it cuts to black and that's the end of it. Like that's as close. And this is better than that. And that to me was like one of the all time great movie endings and this tops it. So to me, that's just like, and there's everything else between that John Don, that opening quote from John Don and that very last hearing the chair kick over um, is almost as rich and meaningful as that. Literally every line, every character name, everything. I mean, you know, they, they, the restaurant where they all hang out and where she meets the poet, literally sitting at the, at the foot of an image of Dante the poet is called Dante. Yeah. Dante so, and of course, and, Mimi's played by uh, Elizabeth Russell, who, you know, is in a lot of the Luton movies, has the memorable small part in Cat People, Moya Sestra and everything. Um, and I love that this film is actually bookended by two very minor but very super significant characters, two miserable women, right? You got Miss Gilchrist, uh, the assistant at the school, who is like just staring at her so weirdly. And then as you know, she's sent off into the world 
after, you know, the headmistress or whatever has said, you know, well, you could stay here and be my slave, basically, if you prefer. <laughs> and and she's like, don't do it. You know, it takes courage to really live in this world. You know, you need to, I made that mistake. I, you know, I stayed here. You need to go out and like live your life. This, this is a woman who's like very much alive, but seems like she'd prefer to be dead, you know, yeah. where she's leading a non-life. And then at the end, you meet a woman who is at death's door, but is desperate to go out and live, like, you know, wants to continue living. And they kind of form these sisters, right? The kind of like ideals of these sisters, how Mary wants to go out and start her life and even starts to kind of think of Jacqueline as a burden, you know, says things like, you know, or, or the, the poet says to her, look in your heart, do you really want to find your sister? Do you really want to have to like go into her world, her depression? Uh, and there's a cut scene too, where the sister even says to somebody, it would be so much easier if she were dead, if Jacqueline were dead and I didn't have to deal with it. And you realize this is a person who's embracing life and doesn't want to have anything to do with being obsessed with death the way her sister is. And they're still almost kind of absorbing her energy in a very Vovalaka kind of way, you know, uh, <laughs> where she's the younger woman kind of like taking the life away from this woman who is inching slower and, you know, more and more towards death throughout the whole movie. There's just so much, you know, between the characters that you kind of come to appreciate at the end, how they're kind of going in opposite directions. Oh yeah, and there's also all this. There's this like rich stew of of old Greek myths and and you know Paradise Lost. Uh, you know there there there's lines of dialogue and allusions that basically you know in the whole Dante thing that suggests she's going underground, she's going into the underworld to grapple with this stuff. You know, and it's a it's an open question of whether she's going to make it out or not. Uh, and you've got the poet, you know, that she meets at Dante's, uh, basically guiding her and, and encouraging her to live and enter his ascend to his world. Um, it's just, it's just beautiful, I think. Um, and this is make what 41, 43, something like that, you know, relatively early, um, I think. And, you know, it is dealing with, I mean, I guess, I guess the existentialists were, were writing about this stuff at the same time. But to me, it feels like this is, you know, he's predicting all the shit that happened, you know, with it, that made this fucking country elect Trump. Like, like we have a death wish, right? <laughs> um, and like, as, as, a, as a society, as opposed, you know, beyond just individuals. Um, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of smart people think part of what's going on is just we're rich and bored, right? Like we have too much. And when you, when you meet all your base needs, um, all of a sudden it's like, okay, now what problem do I have to solve? Uh, and a lot of people are like, there's nothing left to do. Like, what am I doing here? Uh, yeah. And if you don't, and if you have everything and you're not happy, uh, you know, it gets, it, it gets really tough to muddle through. <laughs> That's the yeah. line the poet has, right? He says the reason that the two of us are happy when he's talking to the restaurant owner, he says, you've got everything and I have nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Yep. And, and, and throughout the movie, different characters, everybody's constantly talking about, are they happy? Are they sad? Who's happy? Why are they happy? Why are they sad? Why am I not like them? Why can't I be like them? Uh, and the thing that I, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear Luton was a depressed individual, um, but, you know, really did a great job of, you know, making something of that through his art. Uh, and I, I don't know, it's just the, the thing that, that really strikes me about this movie is the goth suicidal devil worshiping people really have the better argument. Um, <laughs> there's, there's that scene, you know, that I'm pretty sure was only there to make it past the, you know, the Hayes office or whatever, where the two quote unquote good guys basically give, you know, a lecture, the devil worshipers um, by reciting the Lord's prayer. 
it is, you know, so half-assed and so weak <laughs> compared to, you know, <laughs> the well-dressed, well-spoken, uh, better debaters in the devil-worshipping society. Um, it, 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 it's, it's almost laughable how weak the good, the response of the good people to the bad, to the evil worshippers is. Yeah, that's always the question of, of theodicy is not... Um why does evil exist if God exists? There's lots of very rational reasons you can come up with that evil might exist, even if there's an all-powerful God. What this movie, I think, addresses head-on is the more difficult question of why is evil easier and more prevalent and more compelling than good if God exists? And the answer sort of has to be, it's probably because there is no God. That's probably the, the answer to this is there's no reason for evil to be more prevalent and powerful and compelling and rational and pervasive than good if if there's some benevolent force overseeing all of it, you know, and I think it addresses it directly. It's funny talking to you guys. When I think of this movie, the things you guys have been talking about aren't on the forefront of my mind. The big existential questions. When I watch this movie, this movie, I always think about this movie is about um, as a woman, how do you decide which man to be with? Right. <laughs> like, how do you pick, like, how do you identify what's goodness in a partner and what's, and how do you fall in love and protect yourself in love? You know, like the Tom Conway character, the Lewis Judd comes across as an asshole initially, but like, he's the one who's trying to be direct and honest with her. Whereas the lawyer who she sort of falls in love with instantly and is sort of idealizes is secretly married to his sister and is the biggest <laughs> scumbag of all, you know, and then you have the sort of fuck up poet who's enchanting in his own way, but like the, the existential the Bergerac thing. Exactly. Um, the, uh, the, the existential journey of this movie is like, how, like, how do you actually choose who to be in love with? These are all very good looking, perfectly suitable men to be in love with. How do you actually pick which one and know you've made the right choice? You know, how do you how do you actually navigate that sort of existential problem, the, the existential problem of love? And Val Luton always talked about like his rule was, is that uh, he had a few rules for what the movies have been. But primarily the only rule about story wasn't that it had to be a horror movie but that it had to be a love story. That was his rule about what the films had to be. I think it goes without saying when you're assigned the title, I walked with a zombie or the leopard man, you're bound to a horror movie, but him thinking about love and saying these have to be love stories, I think is what gives them their psychological depth and complexity. Because if you apply horror film uh, ideas and, and cliches to a love story, you end up with, this kind of psychological depth, you end up with this kind of existential depth to it, I think is, is where that comes from. Yeah. The, the other thing I like about this is the, you know, it, in a weird way, I'm going to say this and it's not, it, it may not resonate, but it's, it's, it's Lynchian in a way, right. In that yeah. there is, it's not, it's not, you know, deliberately weird and straight from the subconscious, the way a lot of Lynch's work is, but what it does have is very blue velvety in that there's an innocent ingenue, literally milk drinking young ingenue yeah. uh, who represents goodness and light. And then there's this dark haired, you know, sexy, potentially evil lady with heart, with tragic secrets, um, you know, and there's a, there's a push and pull between those two for forces. Um, so, you know, David Lynch isn't somebody who, who talks a lot about being influenced by other 
other directors, um, but I'm pretty sure he saw this movie. Uh, oh, for sure. It only inserted itself in his subconscious. And then the other thing that, that is definitely worth mentioning is, you know, the scene when she's in the shower and, and uh, you know, Reddy comes in, comes in, you know, oddly comes into her apartment, into her bathroom while she's in the shower and you just yeah. see her shadow, you know, she's got her like, you know, weird bun, hair bun in, yeah. but, you know, sort of, it looks like there's a devil talking to her through the thing. And you, you look at that, you're like, I'm pretty sure Alfred Hitchcock saw this movie. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, 100% that it's the, uh, it's sort of famously the, uh, the psycho scene yeah. with that. He does such a great job too, making such a great mystery, such a seductive mystery of Jacqueline, who we don't meet for half an hour, which is almost halfway through the movie, you know, um, but like just making her, you know, even the characters even say, you know, once you see her, you don't forget her. Uh, you know, the, the noose in the apartment. I mean, everything we learn about her, I think that's a Lynchian thing too, right? The kind of allure of the darkness, the allure of, you know, the the woman who is uh, headlong going into death. That, yeah, uh, and the first the first glimpse you get of her, you know, she's got this weird black wig um, that's unlike anybody, any, any hairstyle anybody else in the movie has. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't say a word. She just puts her finger to her lips, you know, and basically says, shit, and then she disappears. I was like, what the fuck was that about? (laughs) (laughs) It's her sister who's been looking for her. Like, say something, say hello. (laughs) And the idea, too, that that Mary, the sister, has a dangerous side to her, too, that she leads the private eye down that dark corridor. She's she's like, you know, struggling with it after he gets killed. Like, I, I sent him into the darkness, you know. She's the one who let him know. His death is totally her fault. He literally says, I don't, I'm not sure I want to go with you. And then, then then he goes with her and then, you know, they're at the hall and she doesn't want to walk down the hall. And she goes, you could walk down the hall. He goes, I don't want to. And she basically harangues him into walking down the hall and then he gets stabbed with a pair of scissors. (laughs) (laughs) Like, fuck you, Mary. (laughs) Let me ask about Lewis Judd. Do, do we all kind of accept that this is the same character from cat people? Same it's actor, the same obviously. name. I love same Dr. Lewis Judd. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> I can't get enough of him. He's great. Tom Conway, the Falcon's brother, one of the true, one of the true greats, embodies a certain kind of like, oh, I love him. It's funny that this is what used to pass for acting kind of <laughs> kind of performance where I just can't get a bring it back. I say him. bring it back. <laughs> Let's see, Timothy, uh, let's see Timothy Chalamet try to do that kind of performance. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I, I was thinking like, oh, you know what? I love it in, in, in prequels where a character gets brought back and, you know, we've previously seen them being pretty evil and getting killed for being evil. And then they're kind of redeemed by like returning as like a kind of a better intentioned character. And I was like, what, what am I thinking of? What is that from? And I was really wrestling like, it's got to be from something. I, and it was a disappointing answer. It's from Frank Miller's Sin City is what I was thinking <laughs> of. A, a cop who gets seduced by that dame to kill for and then uh, in a prequel comes back as a good guy. So that's what I was thinking of, unfortunately. But it is great to see him back in this movie and kind of get that redeeming moment after the way he treated poor Irina in, in Cat People. <laughs> well, it's funny. If you want to move on to, to I Walked With a Zombie, just so we don't go infinitely long, when he first appears on the boat... Tom Conway, the actor, I always have, even knowing the movie, I have a reaction of, oh, it's Dr. Lewis Judd again, you know, because he comes and he sort of psychologizes her. He interrupts her internal monologue, right? He shows up and we've got voiceover and he steps in and interrupts it, you know, it literally responds to things she's thinking.
thing and psychologizes her and then talks about, you know, the putrescence and the, the you know, all of the death. There's no beauty here, only death and decay and all of that on the boat. And he's he's very Dr. Lewis Juddy there in, in that moment. It always takes a minute for me to go, oh, no, this is a completely different character than that. Um but I do think that there's something to to the idea of the the Lewis Judd expanded universe and Val Luton, <laughs> where this kind of figure is really important to what Val Luton's doing, because he is somebody who has a sharp analysis of things, but also succumbs to it. Like having a sharp analysis doesn't do anything for him to get him out of it. You know, like he's analyzed the existential crises that all humans have, and he's bound to it. He's understood the situation, but he's not able to do any better anything about it than anybody else and is, in fact, you know, sort of uh, in, incompetent in a lot of ways in cat people uh, in particular about about doing anything with this analysis he has. Well, even in Seventh Victim, you know, where he admits to the poet, you know, Oh yeah, that woman you fell in love with that I took away from you. She's in an insane asylum. So sorry it's about a, that. Horrible <laughs> raving thing. <laughs> but it, what 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 I love about his character, and you know, when you when you first meet him in the Seventh Victim, is you know they keep you on your, your edge of on the edge of your seat about him for a little bit because it's unclear. Like, is he treating these? Is he helping these women, or is he killing these women? Right? Like, yeah. is he feeding them to the devils, uh, to the devil worshippers? Uh, is he, you know, is, is he making them better or worse? And it, it's it's unclear for a little bit. Ultimately, he gets, I think, redeemed. Um, but you know, I want to go. So you know, let let's talk about that scene on the boat at the very beginning of Zombie. Uh, you know, because this is this is this is an example of me going, holy shit, hit and pause, hit and rewind, writing down exactly yeah. what I said, and literally just turning it into a song, because this dialogue is so it's so over the top, but it's so <laughs> it's, it's really well written, but very purple. Uh, you know, she's just staring at you know she's she's riding on a boat to Antigua and, and marveling at how beautiful everything to, is to Saint Sebastian. Yes, is the name of the death. That's right. And he walks up to her and says, it's not beautiful. Those flying fish, they're not leaping with joy. They're jumping in terror. Bigger fish want to eat them. That luminous water takes its gleam from millions of dead bodies. The glitter of putrescence. <laughs> There's no beauty here. Only death and decay. Everything dies here, even the stars. And like, what a fucking statement of purpose from, you know, I mean, that's just Val Luton. Hi, I'm Betsy. <laughs> nice to meet you and what i love about that too is later on when she meets his brother wesley wesley's like so he gave you the uh, death and decay pickup lines like he's apparently always hitting on women being like everything's dead here did you know that i just want you to how's that, that doing anything for you glitter of putrescence works a lot of the time on these ladies <laughs> But the plot of I Walked with a Zombie is where we have Betsy Connell, who's a Canadian nurse. I don't know why it's important that it's Canadian. It gets mentioned more times than makes sense in the movie. She's hired to go down to a, a island. She's called... happy to get out of the snow. That's the motivation. <laughs> Does she have any familiarity with witchcraft? Just standard interview question. 
Just curious. <laughs> and he's going to go to St. Sebastian, which is a uh, little island that has basically nothing on it but these sugar plantations. Uh, and she's going to be, she's been hired to care for the wife of a plantation owner, Paul Holland. This is the aforementioned Tom Conway on the boat who's, you know, knows that the stars are even going to die someday. And what is happening with Paul's wife is that she, there's something um, physically wrong with her but that she's basically been zombified that she wanders around in a flowing night gown like she's a vorvalica an isle of the dead and when she's uh, approached she screams but she sort of has no interior life she's alive but seems to have no consciousness have no mind and from there betsy is uh sort of embroiled in the um well the shame and the sorrow of this family there's no other way to describe it which is that the story of what has happened is that wesley who's the brother of paul has fallen in love with uh paul's wife jessica, jessica. right so Wesley has fallen in love with with Paul's wife, Jessica, before she was zombified. And when they were scheduled to run away together, uh, Paul and uh, Wesley's mother has gone to the voodoo priestesses on the island and asked her to be zombified in this way, has asked the voodoo god to uh, curse her in this way, even though she doesn't really believe in voodoo and she's a respected doctor in her own right and sort of a powerful matriarch of the family. And then this spinal affliction, this inflammation of her spine, which is affecting her nervous system, overtakes her and she's sort of bedridden from there on out and the story of the movie uh, much like seventh victim is it's basically a mystery movie we're slowly unraveling the story and what's happening and who's behind it but it builds to betsy goes to a voodoo ceremonies attempting to after insulin treatment insulin shock treatment fails to wake her up she takes her to the voodoo ceremonies trying to get her to wake her up there she leaves those and then eventually once it's revealed to the uh to the islanders uh to the to the native not the natives to the slaves who are working in the sugar ham plations that she's a zombie they have an interest in her and keep trying to use ceremonies to draw her to them and the first time she stopped uh, by Betsy. And then the second time they let Jessica go, Wesley goes to save her, takes an arrow with her out that he's pulled out of uh, the, the St. Sebastian statue. And then later their bodies are found dead in the water. Jessica and Wesley's bodies are found dead by the uh, plantation workers. And that is what it builds to that is the end of it uh like seventh victim it's you know about an hour long it's barely it's barely an hour i think it's like 64 minutes and it's no fat on it whatsoever it's all about the the mood and the tone and sort of the the eeriness of what's been set up it's uh 69 minutes long i should say and um tim what draws you to this movie what do you like about this one and do you hold it it seems like seventh victim is like the lodestar of luton for you uh the, do you what, what sort of level do you put this one on why did you want to talk about this one as well so this, this is number two to me um i saw it first and you know and i thought it was the greatest thing ever and then i saw seventh yeah. victim i was like oh my god that's even better than zombie um <laughs> so i and you know so when when i when i did a rewatch after after rewatching uh, Seven Victim, 
uh, I, I got a better idea of why it was my number two. And I think partly because, you know, he, he's basing this a bit on, you know, on bits of Jane Eyre. Uh, it's yeah. basically like Jane Eyre in the Caribbean, uh, you know, with, with voodoo. Uh, and that, I, I feel like that, that that's a bad constraint in a way in that there's, you know, there's some plot points he feels like he needs to hit that aren't necessarily, you know, and, they, and then he's trying to cram them into, uh, you know, the, 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 the philosophical things he wants to say. Um, so that's why it, does, it doesn't work quite as well for me but you know like i said the first time i saw it i was like this is unlike anything i've ever seen it's got such a stupid fucking name and it's such a deep movie how can those two things coexist uh and and again much like the seventh victim it's super modern right like i i I watched it i was raving about it and i made some friends jay and his wife jay the guitar player too much joy and his wife i was down we were recording some doing some final recording for the most recent album and I said, like, on Friday night, we're going to watch uh, Seven Victim. And on Saturday night, no, I said, we're going to do a double feature. We're going to watch Seven Victim and I Walk With a Zombie. But they fell, they fell asleep after Seven Victim. And I was like, okay, tomorrow we'll watch I Walk With a Zombie. And we were walk- watching it. And there's this one scene, you know, when they get to that 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 super tall and thin bug-eyed zombie guy. Yeah, Kara Far at the crossroads. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and Jay's wife goes, this is kind of racist. I was like, it's the literally the opposite of racist in the first four minutes there's a treatise about slavery and how these people were you know were brought to this island uh and you know the the driver who's taking her from the dock to you know to the to her place of employment um basically says to her you know that the hollands the the her her you know her employers brought colored folks to the island and chained to the bottom of boats yes and t misery which is what they call that saint sebastian figurehead um he brought the long ago fathers and mothers to the island chained to the bottom of the boat and she goes well they brought you to a beautiful place and the driver who's black says if you say miss if you say and then throughout (laughs) the movie they're just talking about the legacy of slavery and how you know because of slavery they find life a burden and they weep when children are born and they dance when they're when they get buried Uh, and that to me was both you know, it's working on multiple levels because it's actually grappling with, you know, colonialism and slavery. Um, but it's also a great metaphor for depression, just like the seven victim is. Um, and the other thing I like about it is, you know, just watching how zombies evolve in popular culture over time. This is back when zombies still moved slowly, you know, before they yeah. got super speed. And when they were a metaphor for, you know, alienation and depression rather than, you know, crass consumerism or, you know, or, or disease, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, or AIDS or whatever. Uh, so, so I found that really rich. Um, but again, it was just the dialogue. There are so many, you know, this one, I literally copy and pasted into the song that's on the most recent record called I Met a Ghost. Um, I Met a Ghost is a combination of, there's an, there's a Charles Lawton movie called The Canterville Ghost, yeah, um, yeah. you know, which just has the old, it's a comedy, but it's that, that trope where there's a there's a, a guy who died, but he, you know, he can't move on to the afterlife. He's stuck on this plane until, you know, he corrects something from his past life. And I was watching that. I was like, well, you know, you see that in movies a lot, but like this guy already died and everybody's yeah. like, oh, you got to move on. You got to die. Basically, they're saying, <laughs> you know, on Earth, you know, the thing he's always known, they're going like, you got to get out of here. You got to move on. You got to go to the afterlife. I totally understand the ghost going, why? Like, <laughs> why I already died once. I didn't want to die then. Why do you want me to die a second time? So I was I was thinking about that. And then I saw this movie and there's all these fucking lines like, you know. 
weeping when a child is born and dancing, you know, when, when they get buried and there being no beauty, only death and decay. I was just, I was pausing it constantly and writing lines down and going, I know I'm going to use this somehow. Um, so I just found it super inspiring. Even uh, honestly, like the seventh victim, I was just like pasted back in my chair, watching it, uh, every pausing every once in a while to write down dialogue. But like, mostly I was just like, it had me in its thrall. Whereas this one was just inspiring me to go do my own stuff. That line's incredible. Just the idea that, you know, slavery is like still such a, you know, uh, overwhelming thing to these people that, you know, the only release is death and they celebrate it. The kind of old Val Luton adage that death is is good. Death is the release. Yeah. Uh, And something that you had uh, said when we were talking about doing this was um, that you don't really consider these horror movies. And I was thinking about that a lot because that's something that I, you know, obviously think too when I watch these movies. I think of them a little bit like, the horror movies kind of already happened. These are almost kind of like ramifications of things from the past. Yeah. You think of the legacy of the slaves in this movie, the Native Americans massacred in New Mexico and the Leopard Man, the desecrated bodies in Isle of the Dead, uh, the previous six victims in the seventh victim, uh, then the Serbian women who were persecuted and murdered, which hangs heavily over Irina in, in Cat People. There are all these things from the past that are just still affecting people in the you know in the in the modern setting of the of the of these worlds and that's how they're kind of a horror movie these these horrible things that have happened and are still happening and the only way to get away from this awful legacy is to 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 move on from the world to kind of pass into the next one and hope that you know it's something better yeah i love i love there's there's a part when uh uh you know when wesley is explaining you know his sort of tortured history with his half brother uh and he says, uh, or, or maybe it's, maybe it's Holiday says this. He says, "You think life's beautiful, don't you, Jessica? You think? Oh yeah, no. He, he's he's basically saying what Tom said to Jessica when she before she was zombified. Yeah. Says, you think life's beautiful, don't you, Jessica? You think you're beautiful. What he could do to that word beautiful? That's Paul's great weapon. Words. He uses them like other men use their fists. I just, I mean." <laughs> That's a that that's a, that's a moment when I pause and I write that down. I was like using words like fists, like that. You're speaking my language, Val. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you but if you don't consider these horror movies, what do you consider them? Like, what's the distinction you're making? Because you know when these when Val Luton got into the horror game, a lot of his explicit intention was I. He, he didn't want to make goon movies. He didn't want to make Frankenstein. He didn't want to make the mummy. He has the famous, the famous quote of, I don't want to make a movie about a wolf man chasing a woman up a tree. Right. Yeah. Which is funny because this movie's movie's written by Kurt Siodmak, who wrote the wolf man and created all the wolf man mythology too. I don't think a lot of people know everything, you know, about werewolves. Kurt Siodmak made up for that. <laughs> it's not traditional werewolf stuff. Um, but uh, he wanted to, to sort of save um, horror movies from what they had become, from sort of the cartoon of what they had become. So it's in a funny way, um, he's he's on to something about resisting the horror genre in some way and res- are certainly resisting what had become sort of in the, the universal goon squad. So I'm curious what you think of these movies as, if not horror movies. I, I, I consider them fairly deep philosophical uh, explorations of depression and alienation. And I would say if, you know, to the extent that they're horror movies, they just start from the premise that we are the fucking monsters uh, and you don't need uh, some supernatural thing uh, when it's really just us doing it to ourselves. There, there's a, in that, in that uh, 
the documentary that Scorsese narrates uh, about Luton and his work. Yeah, Kent's uh, documentary. There's a he he quotes. I think I, I think he's quoting Luton at some point where Luton's sort of like dismissively, you know, laughing about how much money Universal spends on their horror movies. Uh, <laughs> you know, and you know they're they're wasting three hundred thousand dollars, and you know, and it doesn't look any better than mine. Uh, yeah, and yeah. I just really admire that about him. And I, you know, I be. The, the movies he made with Boris Karloff really made me respect and admire Boris Karloff. Uh, and so I, I went back and rewatched some of the, you know, the universal movies with Karloff and anytime he and Bella Lugosi are together, it's like, okay, sign me up for that. I want to watch it. And so just recently, like th- this past month, I watched one called the black cat. It's the one where, you know, there's the newlywed couple mm-hmm. uh, and they're, you know, there's an accident and they wind up at Borlef- Boris Karloff's, you know, architectural masterpiece that's built on the ruins of this castle where he betrayed all the people to the Nazis during World War II, um, uh, or not during World War II, during because it was just before this was be- this was made in the thirties. Yeah, so. yeah, it's like thirty four. Um, yeah, but it, but but it's uh, it. So I guess he was betraying them to some other some some pre Nazis. Uh, <laughs> but basically, the you know, it's I, I I that just seemed like such a pale shadow of what Luton was doing with less money. Um, and more insight uh, to me. It's like, you've got the same actors or, you know, you've got Karloff there. And and to me, it's like, they're wasting it. Like Luton knew what to do with Boris Karloff. Yeah. And Karloff was always so thankful for what Luton did for him. He always considered that, that Luton had sort of saved him from his career and saved him from it. And if you consider the movies that Karloff made bookending, uh, the three he made with Val Luton, he makes House of Dracula right before he does these, which is just like total creative exhaustion of it. It's like one of those Dracula meets Frankenstein. It's not Frankenstein, the doctor even. It's <laughs> it's some other doctor related to Frankenstein. And for the, the Wolfman, it's one of those movies. And then on the other side, he makes Dick Tracy meets Gruesome, in which Boris Karloff plays Gruesome. And Skelton Nags plays X-Ray. Skelton Nags, the great uh, character actor, is in a bunch of the Val Luton movies. But just putting it in that context, it's just like, if you're really interesting talented actor like boris karloff it must be so fucking depressing to be like what's next for me i'm gruesome in the billionth dick tracy movie you know and to have the opportunity to do bedlam and isle of the dead and and body snatchers is you know you can really clearly see he's being given the opportunity to do something real and in that context too exactly what you're saying if a horror movie is house of dracula then you know certainly bedlam it's almost impossible to consider a horror movie and isle of the dead i think is also similar those three, the Karloff three, I think are more difficult than Cat People, Leopard Man, Seventh Victim to think of as horror movies. I think that they really have completely floated away from the horror genre at that point, that they're only just barely moored to it in some way. Well, I would say Body Snatcher is more clearly, like, you know, more comfortably in that camp. Yeah. Like, like- what what Karloff does in that, there's a scene in 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 uh in the pub where you know the next morning after I watched it, you know, like on a Friday or a Saturday night, uh I, I you know I saved it. I brought my wife into the den. I was like, I know you think these movies are stupid. <laughs> 
I'm just going to make you watch this one six minute scene because if I tell you, I'm not even going to tell you who this actor is. I just want you to see this amazing piece of acting. So I showed her the scene and she's like, yeah, that was pretty good. It's like, do you know who that was? And she goes, no, who was it? I was like, that was Boris Karloff. And she's like, no fucking way. Let's watch it again. Yeah. I think that's a really instinctive of you to put Seventh Victim and I Walk with the Zombie together. I've never watched them really close together until now. And uh, just the description of Jessica in I Walk with the Zombie as being a, uh, in a world that's empty of joy or meaning as a, yeah. or a sleepwalker that she can, that can never be awakened, knowing nothing, feeling nothing just made me think, Oh, she's Jacqueline from seventh victim is exactly yeah. what she is. I mean, besides the fact that they both kind of borrow the Jane Eyre template of, you know, the inconvenient wife who's very much there, even when she's never around, you know, and the, and the younger girl steals the husband. Um, it's, they're just both these like interesting existential uh, films about, a character who is super, super interesting, even though she's barely in it, you know, like it just, she kind of represents this allure and this kind of to the darkness that all these films, you know, kind of embrace as opposed to like sort of the more boring heroes, the Oliver Reeds, the Mary and Gregory of seventh victim, the Jerry and Kiki of, uh, of leopard man, you know, it's just like, you don't care about these guys. You're getting the love plot out of the way, but like, they're going to go off and live happily ever after, you know, they're, they're not going to be the fish jumping away from the bigger fish, you know, miserable all their lives. We're more drawn to the misery. We're more drawn to these characters who are doomed in these films. And that's kind of the allure of Val Luton in general, I think. Yeah. And what, what's, inter what's interesting about Zombie is that the, the putatively happy-go-lucky charming brother, uh, you know, winds up dying uh and the guy who you know it's literally introduced talking about you know the glitter of putrescence uh winds up you know see you know letting go of that and you know stepping into love and seeing the light once he's shed of this thing that was chaining him to you know his his grim view of the world um i don't know well, really it was that. a cockeyed canadian nurse to come along yes. and change his <laughs> view of everything we've yeah, got to I mention don't... sir lance a lot too shame and scandal for the family he released that on a record Oh, it's. I mean, you know that that's that's a, that's a famous old calypso song. Madness does a really good cover of it on a, on a pretty shit covers album of old ska songs. One thing that talking about these two movies that that struck me, something that I always say about pairing these, that for me, what I like, I think Luton is strongest the stronger his women characters are that cat people and seven victim and this film are very strong to me because they have very strong women characters that they're based around feminine energy in a very specific way in a way that i think presages what the horror genre becomes later on where in the 30s horror is very masculine energy it's the very monster goon squad type energy and then by the time you get to the slashers and sort of the final girl era later on i think that that's you can see that legacy coming out of these film or presaging it in some way and uh we didn't mention the other screenwriter on i walked with the zombie is ardell ray who was a woman who worked of a lot with with val luton and I do think that there's something about the energy of this movie that is it's extremely feminine. I don't know how to describe it better than that. And and this one and cat people and and seventh victim certainly have really feminine energies to them. I don't know how to describe it any better than that. And I think that that's something so do Bedlam and Isle of the Dead, even with Carlos Star. Oh, no question. Yeah. No question. And Mademoiselle Fifi which is, is, but that's a really underrated one. That's talk about a movie that gets boned by its title. Um, 
it's it's just the same it's the same thing and i think it is out of step with what the horror genre was thought of at the time you know he's just he's just bringing something completely different to it i mean jane Eyre, what could be a more like beloved by like psychologically feminine at its core book than jane Eyre? it's like the most psychically feminine book ever written uh and i've and to to sort of ape its it's uh gestures with this film i i i don't think i'm saying something crazy i think i'm saying something accurate i agree so tim uh what kind of rounds out your top three if these are your two favorite what's the uh, your third favorite fat Luton movie? um I, you know you, you ask me that question on thursday you'll get one answer ask me that question on friday <laughs> yeah different one. But since it's thursday it's body snatcher um i just you know and it's mostly because karloff is just so unbelievably such an unbelievable presence in that movie yeah um, the, the 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 sort of rage at the core of his performance uh is just really gripping um you know but on a, on a different day it could be it could be bedlam uh, the one that doesn't work for me is curse of the cat people um oh, I, love, really? Love, I love what he's trying to do in it it just you know and, and i can i can understand you know no judgment on anybody who, who, who ranks it as their favorite of his i could understand why the thing that I love about it is, you know, just the little girl living in her fantasy world. That's so well done. Um, mm. The, you know, when nobody comes to the girl's birthday party, oh my God, it just breaks my heart. Um, so I love all that, but some of the stuff with the, with the, um, you know, the, the, the old lady and her daughter who she thinks is an imposter. Um, it just, it doesn't feel as uh, disciplined as a lot of the other writing in, in Luton movies. It feels a little hasty and tacked on to me. Um, but all the girl stuff I love the little, the, just the little kid in her fantasy world is just so beautifully rendered. Do you actually like ghost ship? Cause to me, oh, that's yeah. the one that's like, a tier below everything else it's 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 the the thing that i don't like about it is it's the one where you can see the the constraints of the budget you know poking through yeah um, and that knocks me out of the out of the drama but you know the captain's such a dick uh, <laughs> and uh you know and the the guy who's mute and you know we can only we only we can hear his thoughts like i think yeah. that's really well rendered the whole thing with that hook swaying back and forth um when the guy gets killed in that in that room in the chain the, yeah yeah i mean that stuff that stuff's all really well done so it, it it's more it, it's the creakiest of his movies i think yeah um but the it's good the stuff, thinnest it's yeah. the thinnest of them psychologically not to try and talk you out of it or something but I, I love the Julie Farron stuff in Curse of the Cat People myself. I, I just love the, that movie's theme of uh, good versus bad fantasy, you know? Yeah. And, and, and like, well, questioning what exactly is good and bad fantasy when, you know, the safe fantasy of, you know, Santa Claus and magical trees and things like that, as opposed to, you know, the potential energy of like a young girl's imagination and like where that can take you. And it could take you too far. It could take you to a place where you are literally in danger, like you're going out into a snowstorm. Uh, and you could be killed by the elements or you go to like uh, this creepy mansion where you could be murdered by this woman's port. Again, Elizabeth Russell, the woman's poor daughter who has, you know, been basically fantasized into non-existence by her mother. <laughs> you know, I think there's a lot going on there, but I, I understand what you're saying uh, about it. Kind of, I, and I, I'm sure a lot of people probably as a sequel to cat people are like, what? Oh. It's, not, I mean, it's, a, it's a sequel to cat people the way cat people's a horror movie right. uh, you know one the, thing i noticed the, go ahead sorry 
because the other thing I really love in that is all the interactions between the daughter and the dad. Like when he's mad at her and, and yelling at her and you can see her tremble like that, that, you know, that hits home. That, that, that feels like real life to me. Oh, absolutely. It's great stuff. You know what I noticed uh, this time watching um, the, the Karloff movies? I love how in um, Body Snatch, well, in Isle of the Dead, what stops them from leaving the island because they're just going there to like visit his wife's uh, tomb and they're about to leave and he hears this woman singing and that's what makes them go to the place and find all these people who are uh, are there and then they you know end up getting caught there because of the plague. Um, in Body Snatcher, Karloff's character snuffs out the song of the street singer, you know, the, the woman who is, you know, and in, in Isle of Dead, the woman is like leads them to their doom with her song, and then uh, by Snatcher, he snuffs out, you know, the the the, the woman singing, which I like. Is a nice connection between those films, and I love Isle of the Dead. You know, Chris and I are big Vavolica fans. No, but the use of sound and music in Val Luton's movies. You as a musician, um, do you does that stand out to you? Because that's one of the things that really stands out to me is how he uses sound, how he uses diegetic music. And and how he how they function and um, what do you do you have a a particular reaction to the use of sound and music in these films? So let me let me let me start with sort of a framing anecdote um, that changed the way I thought about I think about uh, music and movies. Uh, the there was a period of time when I was just like completely into the work of Dennis Potter, and again this was like in the nineties before mm-hmm. the streaming era. So finding De- Dennis Potter stuff in America was really hard. Um, but I lived in New York City, and we had the Museum of Television and Radio, and you could go there and you know basically watch pretty much uh, yeah. almost anything you'd ever done for the BBC. Uh, and so one time I was watching this uh, this they'd had an event with him and Stephen Bochco. Uh, and I guess this was in the eighties when cop rock was happening or something. And, they were, <laughs> and the, 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 the conceit of the, of the, you know, it was like a moderated discussion, one interviewer and, and, you know, an American auteur and a, and a, and a British auteur, uh, who were both mostly writers, um, and producers, uh, and they showed a scene from, I think it was like NYPD Blue or something, you know, that had some interesting use of pop music, you know, at the end of an episode. And then they showed it was either singing Detective or Pennings from Heaven, mm-hmm. you know, Dennis Potter using old pop hits, you know, from the, yeah. from the 30s uh, in, in his movie. And, you know, and the moderator was saying like, ah, oh, you know, you're both you know, make such good use of music. And Dennis Potter in this, you know, very polite but vicious, savage British way completely eviscerated Stephen Bochco without seeming like that's what he was doing. <laughs> he said, well, I want to, I want to note an important distinction here. Um, you know, what you just saw in the, in the Stephen piece there, the music is telling the audience how it's supposed to feel. What you saw in my piece is the music is telling you how the character feels. And that to me was sort of like an aha moment. And ever since I've, I've watched that exchange, anytime I'm noticing music in the movies, um, usually I like it when I don't notice when it's working on me and I'm and I'm not conscious of it. And I think and, I, and I'll, I'll just preview. That's what I think Val Luton does really well with music in his movies. Yeah. I almost never notice it. And in movies at that time, I almost I usually it's like so grating because it's so over the top and so loud. And it's doing the Stephen Bochco thing where it's telling you how yeah. you're supposed to feel as opposed to telling you how the characters are feeling. Yeah, um, I do think there's a horror movie exception for this rule where, you know, you think of Jaws and that data. That's not telling you how the swimmer's feeling. Like swimmer's oblivious to what's going on, but it's, it's telling, telling you. It's telling you how the shark's feeling. 
yeah, no, that something, <laughs> something's up. And, you know, so I, I and, and you, you think about, you know, John Carpenter scoring his own movies and it's just completely innovative. It's present, you notice it, but it doesn't sound like music, right? It just yeah. sounds like atmosphere. Um, so to me, uh, I hadn't really thought about uh, music in Val Luton movies, but since you, you know, you had told me that this was one of the things you wanted to talk about and I was doing some rewatches, I was like, oh, I should pay attention to the music. And I kept trying to, and then getting distracted by the movies, yeah. like, you know, 20 minutes would go by. I'm like, oh, there's been music, but I haven't noticed it. That means it's good. So to me, yeah. that's my personal rule is generally speaking, if I notice it, you're doing it wrong, unless it's a horror movie or it's like a John Williams score and a star, you know, in some adventure. Yeah adventure picture like if it's if it's rousing like the you yeah know, the if it's Eric von Korngold doing swashbuckler music then yeah. it's fine um i love and i walk with the zombie the use of the actual song with sir lancelot where it's used as a plot point because he's singing the song about the, what's happened between these two brothers the holland man putting his crazy wife in the tower yeah. right and their first stumble upon they go to the cafe uh the nurse and wesley go to the cafe and the song's being played because the guy, because Lancelot doesn't realize they're in there. And when they are informed by the waiter, they're there. He's like, oh, shit, let me go apologize to him real quick. And I, I got to say, I love that exchange. Creep, creeping so like a little fox and burrow in his heart. Yeah, and he, and, he go, and he goes to apologize. And he, his apology is basically, I wouldn't have sung it if I'd known you were here. What a yeah. shitty apology. It's like, oh, yeah, we all make fun of you behind your back, but we'd never do it to your face. Thanks, yeah. And then later on, when Betsy returns to the cafe and Wesley's passed out drunk, Sir Lancelot plays the song, but he sort of like approaches her to like as like a threat to attack her with it. It's very great and creepy. And it's like you wanted to hear the rest of the story. Well, here you go. I'm warning you. It's fucked up. And it's great use of that. I really love how the music and sound is used in in, um, I Walk With The Zombie. And then the drums that we're constantly hearing of the sugar plantation work. Workers, uh, off in the distance where at first, you know, uh, I think it's Wesley, maybe it's Dr. Conway, or Dr. Conway, Dr. Lewis Judd, Tom Conway's character, um, may, makes the joke about like, oh, you hear the mysterious drums of the, the jungle, you're a little creeped out and he's like, they use it when they're working, it's like a signal to help them keep on track with working, in fact, this means that they're going to pour the cane now and that's what's going on, so it's both like mysterious and then demystifying and I think that, you know, the the actual voodoo sequences, the uh, Olegba where they have the entire crowd singing a traditional um, uh, Haitian folk song right uh our caribbean folk song is very amazing use of that music it's a very incredible to hear that song and it was pretty meticulously researched uh some of this stuff and which i gotta say i i I really admire that and you know a note to any any you know progressive person who watches this movie and thinks that they're just using the, the the natives on the island you know as other um you know or in some untoward way that is absolutely not what's going on this is you know for its time it is an incredibly respectful uh you know use of uh the you know of, of a different culture um, and it's like even now where do you see the saber dancing it's like yeah. you don't see that on screen depicted anywhere this is still one of the only depictions of it that you can see the saber dance done you know i i agree with you and i i gotta say you know i i've i've watched so many 
movies from the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and frankly, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s um, in such a compressed time frame that it's truly shocking just how racist and misogynistic we used to be as a society. Not that like yeah. we fixed it all, but the casual nature with which, like you're watching, you know, a witty Cary Grant movie and everybody's being suave and debonair and, you know, and he's so funny and he's so charming. And then he'll just say Piccaninny or something, right? Yeah. Like it's nothing. Uh, and in, in those movies, the, you know, in, in just in the average movie, it's just taken for granted that black people and women and gay people are second class citizens and you can make fun of them and you can hit them literally with no consequences. Uh, and or they, they, don't, they or they don't even exist. They're non people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or, they're, yeah. or they're not there. Or if you see them. They're well, fine. they're on there on screen, but they're non people. They're yeah, not yeah. a character you would ever give a line to. Yeah, they're carrying luggage or they're shining shoes or something. And in this movie, you know, like it, it, it in Zombie in particular, it's like it's just saying, hey, there's a class system here. There's a history. There's an entire history and system behind it, and it's fucked up. Yeah. Uh, well, so what I think is great about its use of race is it, uh, I think a lot of critics read it as being, okay, what does this say about slavery and the history of slavery? And it's like, no, it's even more progressive and savvy than that. It's about current subjugation. It's about the sugar plantations now. It is not about hey, a hundred years ago, bad things were happening. It's about what is the situation currently, too. And I think in a very unflinching uh, way about how the class is structured there. And I think it also has something um, savvy to say about the way in which subjugated people, their culture gets absorbed by the people that they think are that 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 the people who think they're doing the subjugating sort of get reversed colonized by the cultures of these people all of these supposedly rational western people all come to believe in voodoo and base their life entirely around voodoo and voodoo happenings you know the most rational ruling class people and i think there's something savvy too about that exchange that's left out a lot of the discussions and when you think about like how much quintessentially quote unquote american culture is in reality just black culture you know uh that that's this movie is on to that before it's being talked about you know in in the 90s you know like hey the rolling stones didn't invent any of this rock and roll stuff you know that kind of thing which is so much a cliche now this movie's on to it half a century earlier you know yeah. and there's a there's a really interesting twist in it in that the the first time you meet, I forget the character's name, but she's basically the maid in the in the Holland household. Yeah, and Alma her, isn't that her name? I think maybe. It's yeah, and she's yeah. she's serving our heroine, you know, breakfast in bed, and the heroine's like, "No, no, I'm a servant too. You know, you don't have to do this for me." And she basically, you know, she's got the cheery smile. She's like, "Oh no, I want to do it." And she tells mm. you, you know, and it's really uncomfortable, right? And she says, yeah. "Like, oh, I used to do this for the mistress, and she always said the best way to wake up was to be served coffee in bed or whatever it is." Yeah, and it's kind of gross. Uh, and you're like that that's you know it, it feels like oh maybe i'm just watching another fucking 30s or 40s movie that you know takes the shit for granted but then later on in the movie that same character basically says we're not happy you know yeah. we, we 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 live with shit uh and and you have to understand that and it's like oh that's the lady who was you know was putting on a happy face and saying no i live to serve i live to serve and now she's like i don't live to serve <laughs> yeah we celebrate funerals here <laughs> yes um, 
just in terms of uh, this might be kind of a weird question. Uh, when you think about music and making music, do you relate it to cinematic processes at all in your mind? The the process of like, you know, when you put together an album, do you think of it as like, I'm putting together an overall structured thing, the way a movie is a collection of scenes and moments? You know, do you think about like building an album in that way? Is there any relationship to sort of between sort of the cinematic thinking you do aesthetically, not just in terms of lyrics, but in sort of like a functional, constructive way as a musician within writing a song that you're building a story within the song? Or is that or is there not much of a relationship for those things for you? I would say sometimes yes and sometimes no when writing individual songs when sequencing an album absolutely uh usually you know it the, i mean the way I, I i especially with with the sort of the resurgence of vinyl these days the way we did it in the 80s and 90s was uh you know it's like okay what's the first song on what's the opening song and what's the closing song of side one and what's the opening song of side two and what's the closing song of side too. Um, and so those are sort of your anchors, those four. And then once you have those and you know that that's what they are, then you fill in the middle. Um, and I absolutely, definitely on the last two albums and to a lesser extent, but to some extent on the ones we made in the 80s and 90s, uh, there's definitely a sense of telling a story. Um, and usually at the end of I, I, I tend to be the guy that sequences the record um, and then has to, you know, debate everybody that why my sequence is the sequence. <laughs> we have um, you know, and we'll, we'll shift things here or there, but generally speaking, my, you know, I'll start by saying like, Hey, these are the, these are the openers. I'm, I, these are the ones I think of as openers. And these are the ones I think of as closers. Every once in a while, someone will say, Oh, well, what about this one at the end of side two? And it's like, Oh yeah, that works too. But usually it's, it's me convincing everybody. Uh, and then you fill in the middle. And usually by the time I'm done, I'll sit down and I'll listen to it for a couple of times. And sometimes you change something as you're listening. And the reason you change it is because it's not telling the right story or it's like, Oh no, that has to come beforehand. Either. Sometimes it's musical for me, mostly it's because of the lyrics. Um, but sometimes it has to do with keys and tempos and things like that, you know, and you want to have a, you know, you want to have a journey and you want to have a big end and a big finish and things like that. Um, but usually when I'm done and I've listened to it a couple of times and I've decided that it's good and it's locked, I will send everybody. I'll say like, we didn't, you know, we didn't, know it but we wrote a rock opera and this is the story <laughs> here's the character here's what happens at the beginning here's what happens in the middle here's the climax and here's the denouement that's happened pretty much on the last like five records we've done um and you know again the edibles help with that uh and then everybody, <laughs> everybody makes fun of me and goes like nobody's gonna hear it that way tim but as far as i'm concerned both mistakes were made and all these fucking feelings have a beginning middle and end and tell a particular story and so, and for the, for the individual songs themselves, there are absolutely songs that have beginnings, middles, and ends, and tetley story. Uh, and I'm really happy when I, you know, when I figure out what the end is. Um, and then there are other ones that are just more, you know, impressionistic stream of consciousness that don't really work that way at all. Excellent. So I guess to wrap it up, I would just also uh, say off of the Val Luton tip a little bit. What's next with too much joy? What are you doing? What are your plans? What's happening? Give us all of your pitch promotion type stuff so that we can, can help get it out there into the world. Um, well, I don't, I, I never know what's next with too much joy. You know, I know what's now what's now is we just released, uh, you know, our second album since 
getting serious about making music again, which we only did because, you know, because of the pandemic and because 2020 sucks so bad. Um, and we just responded with art. Uh, and it just literally just started pouring out of us. I, you know, it, like, like it used to when I was 14. Um, we've got, you know, we, we basically recorded a Sandinista's worth of uh, <laughs> recorded a triple album and we only released one, one disc. So there are two other records, uh, out there. I don't know if they'll come out as such ever. Um, right now, I just want as many people as possible to hear all these fucking feelings. Uh, there's some videos for it. Actually, one of the video, the first video we made for it, Mercy Mild, um, was inspired by my movie watching. And, you know, because I would sit on my couch, uh, you know, on late on a Friday night watching silent movies with my own soundtrack playing, uh, I wanted to capture that in one of our videos. So one of the old silent movies I watched that I really, really liked was Rex Ingram's The Magician. And there's this amazing sequence in that when this woman has a vision of going to hell. Um, and all of a sudden I get this old black and white movie gets tinted red and she's in hell. And there's, you know, there's Satan is, or, you know, is playing a pan flute and capering around and uh, <laughs> there's devils, there's demons torturing people. And, and she's, you know, gets carried away by some devil and, you know, her, her dress is falling off and it's all very creepy and disturbing. And so you're, of- you're angling to be the new Rob zombie is what I'm getting no, from no, this. No, 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 <laughs> I'm no, just joking. I'm joking. <laughs> so we took that and it, it, it just fell into the public domain this year. In oh, okay. So we basically took the in hell sequence from, uh, from Rex Ingram's the magician and we just put it to, uh, our song mercy mild, uh, because I wanted to mimic the experience that I had just sitting on my couch watching movies. And so it's not edited, you know, it's literally, I mean, we maybe made one or two edits to the, just to, just to squeeze it into the length of the song. Um, but it's not, we're not trying to cut to the beat or anything like that. It's really yeah. just about what happens with accidental connections. You know, yeah. in the eighties, going to nightclubs in New York city, you know, the bands wouldn't go on stage until like two in the morning. Uh, but if you got in before 11, you could get in for like five bucks. Cause then you'd be buying, you know, like $5 beers all night, which at the time was like, you know, the equivalent of a $15 beer today. Uh, and what they used to do was they'd have, you know, they'd just be playing new wave, but they'd have giant screens on which they project, you know, creepy old movies or, you know, weird foreign TV shows. And it was always wild, you know, the, the accidental confluences that would happen when the music somehow synced up to what was happening on the screen. And it looked like, yeah. so we tried to do that with one of our videos. So I would encourage people who like movies and like music and particularly like too much joy's music to go watch the mercy mile video. Excellent. Excellent. I got to say, talking about seeing bands going on at at 2 a.m., we almost missed your show at the Mercury Lounge because I did not believe, John, that you guys were going on that early. I just I could not believe it at all. And so we got there like it was like, if you say they're going to be on this early, John, I'll believe you. But we got there like five minutes before it started. I was like, oh, shit, they're really going on. I I apologize for that. Starting a set at 6 p.m. It's fucking crazy. Well, just the I'll fact that it got it became the, the 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 life of the night during that's a lie. It was yeah. perfect. I, I mean, I was I was thrilled at eight o'clock that I was done. Um, <laughs> that, that said, that, you know what happened there was we were supposed to have both the early set and the late set. That was the plan. They announced the early set. They were going to wait till it sold out, and they were going to say second show added and and you know start yeah, selling yeah. tickets for the late set. Oh, okay. So when we got to when we were almost sold out. 
uh, I reached out to the club. I said, okay, is it time to advertise the, the lake set down? They're like, oh, what had happened was between the time we booked the gig and the time we sold out the, the early set, the woman that had that I booked the original two shows with had left the-, the Oh, Jesus. And she, you know, somehow it fell through the cracks and they're like, oh, we gave that show away. Somebody else. Oh said. my God. So, yeah. We were supposed to have Jeez. both sets and we wound up with just one. Sorry about that. But I, no, no, it's, <laughs> it's no, completely no. okay. It, it was completely okay. I am also getting old and it was like, this is very nice <laughs> yeah. that we're done. We, John, would you like to get dinner and go to bed at a reasonable hour tonight? Would you like to get out of here? Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for picking Val Luton. He's obviously a filmmaker we love a lot and love to talk about him. It's it's an incredible confluence. If you had told me when I was 17, someday you will talk about Val Luton with Tim Quirk, I would have been like, who's Val Luton? But a couple years later, it would have been really uh, incredible to me. It's just a really happy you did this really fantastic and i we love we love the new albums too they're really great if you're a fan of classic too much joy this stuff is just as good and just as interesting uh as anything you guys have ever done in my opinion so uh yeah i want to want to say the same i you know would have been happy just for you guys your story to continue in general like i would have been happy with anything but all these fucking feelings is it's your Fury Road to put it in cinematic terms you know it's (laughs) just as relevant as the stuff you've been doing before that's the nicest compliment this album has got. It's very nice of you to say. I mean, I obviously I feel that way because I just made it. I always like the most recent thing I did. Um, but it's nice to hear other people feel the same way. Yeah, and having infused with Val Luton just makes it the experience even better <laughs> listening to it. It's fantastic. <laughs> and this has been absolutely great. Thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. I look forward to hearing it later and, and cringing at all the times I say, um. <laughs> <laughs>